want you to take your Bible and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. And we are returning again to uh, the verses we covered last week. You know, um, you could preach uh, months and months and months on the passage we're in and never exhaust its truth. You might exhaust yourself. You might exhaust your own mind and your own ability to think. But you would never, ever reach the bottom of the truth that is here. It is an eternal truth that unfolds in a myriad of ways. One of the things I debated this week was where to go because we're here at the Easter season and we're going to follow the church calendar this year. We're going to, uh, we're going to, uh, um, go through, uh, the Passion Week. We're going to, we're going to start out with the, uh, uh, Palm Sunday observance, thir- Monday, Monday, Thursday, uh, the celebration of Passover and Lord's Supper and how those things came together. Good Friday, uh, a crucifixion service. We'll have a crucifixion service and then Easter celebration, resurrection celebration. So we got some things coming up that are going to naturally take us out of Ephesians. And I'm teaching a uh, conference in Georgia on missions, the church in missions, uh, the, the 17th of April. And so I'll be gone then. And so and it's just, there's a lot of things going on. And I, I was really debating, what should I do? And if, initially at the first of the week, my thought was go back and cover Ephesians 1 and 2 in a, in a, in a fast-paced review. And then as the week wore on, I moved about Wednesday of the week, I moved into re-preaching the sermon from last week in, a, in an application form. Because I'm afraid that what happens in a sermon like last week is you hear doctrine and you shut off practicality. You think, well, this is all great, but what do I do? What do I do? And a theology is, is, is intimately and absolutely practical. The church is not only... An orthodox church. It is a church of orthopraxy, which is a practice. One practice. And so I I don't ever want to leave you to to think, well, that was all great, but what what about me? What do I do? And so I've uh, put together a sermon that I hope will be just that. It is not devoid of doctrine. Nor can you now check your brain and think this is going to be simply a uh, a little talk on isms. What I should or shouldn't do. Do isms. This is going to be... Deep also, okay? But hopefully the two will marry to one another to bring a great, uh, a great end to this passage. We are a worshiping temple. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. Look at that passage with me. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. You have come into the kingdom with the saints and you are members of the household of God the family of God. So I said we are members of the kingdom of God by His grace. We are members of the family of God by His grace. And then it says we're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is a, this is a uh, temple like no other temple. It is a growing temple. It is a temple under construction. It is a temple that will be under construction until He comes again. It, there, there, there will be lively stones added more and more. This is a temple that's all-consuming. This is a temple that is worldwide. This is a temple whose foundation is deep and old 2,000 years old to be exact. This temple is growing on a foundation that is so deep and so strong, it withholds and withstands years and years and years of history. This is the greatest temple you could ever imagine. This is the temple you and I are by God's grace a part of the structure. What a beautiful picture of this is being drawn for us here. And I want to plumb into the depths. How does that affect me? What does that do for my family? How does that affect Grace Fellowship? What, how do we fit here? And so that, I want to give you three uh, points here this morning. First of all, we are the temple of God, built on the firm foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ as our cornerstone. 
Those are the words of Paul in 20, in verse 20. We're built on a firm foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ as our cornerstone. So in this passage, Christ is not seen as the foundation. Though in other places he is called the foundation, in 1 Corinthians 3 primarily, Paul says, there is no other foundation which one a man can lay but Christ Jesus. We don't seek to lay a new foundation. We're, we're just building on the foundation who is Christ. Okay? So, so I'm not disputing that Christ is the foundation. But here Paul's analogy turns a little. And the analogy are the, the words here, uh, though they... Um, come across as an analogy, I hope you see that these are deeper than an analogy. Uh, and as, I, as we go into this, I want to make it plain. I do not believe that the church is like a temple. I do not believe that the church is an analogy to the temple or the temple is an analogy to the church. I don't think Paul meant that. I don't think he viewed it that way. I mean, and Paul says, the church is the temple. It's not like it. It is it. That is so important. Do not ever confuse that. This passage is meant to be read and believed. Not explained away. And not made to be less than it is. We are the temple Of the living God. That's what the church is. Okay? And how is that being done? How is that being built? And that's what we want to focus on. How is it that we're being built on the... What is the foundation? And how are we being built on it? And how does Christ then fit that structure? And to do that, I want us to see that first of all, a cornerstone is not an insignificant piece of the foundation. A cornerstone in in large part is the only way the building holds together. It's not that Christ is being put over to the edge. You know, we often think about that like, well, Paul sounds to be sounds like he's minimizing Jesus. He's putting him over here at the corner. No. No. The cornerstone was an exact and beautiful and strategic stone that was hauled in and usually constructed so that it became a perfect stone. So that the whole structure then was measured and built off of the cornerstone. So much so that you could take, if you could, take the cornerstone out of the building, the whole building fell apart. Everything in the building was tied to the cornerstone. They didn't have modern engineering where they could put beams and such to carry and share and disperse the load so that everything kind of fit together. And if one section was compromised, the rest of the building was okay. No, if you pulled the cornerstone out, the whole building collapsed. It was worthless. It was useless. So Paul is not minimizing Christ by calling him the cornerstone. He's basically saying, you take Christ, and you take the church, and you take the temple, and there is no temple without Him. Okay? But He says there's a foundation. So, we need to understand that. And and the best way for me to do that, so that uh, we can best understand it, is to turn to the words, because I think Paul and Jesus are agreeing, Paul's agreeing with Christ. Matthew 16, the passage I read to you earlier in our service and now I want to look at it with you for, for, for purpose of understanding Ephesians. What we're doing here is called the analogy of Scripture. Scripture interpreting Scripture. This is the principle of the Reformation that the whole Reformation was built on. How are we to understand Ephesians 2, 20 through 22? Well... We understand in this near context, we did that last week. And we understand in this biblical context, which we're doing some this week. Okay, so Matthew 16. Here we are, verse 13. Jesus asks a very important, I just want to make some observations here. Jesus asks a very important question. And you always need to pay attention when Jesus asks questions. He is a great teacher. He asks a very general and broad question, doesn't he? First of all, he retires from the hustle and bustle of the city to the pristine seaside village of Caesarea Philippi. His men must have thought they were going on vacation and retreat. We're going to chill out, so to speak. Take it easy. 
Get in the island spirit and the island life. And Jesus has much different intentions for his men. While they're kind of settling in, I can imagine their minds, you know, like, oh, this is cool. We're going to take some time off, man. Ministry's been hard and all this. And Jesus, while they're bustling around, says, who do men say the Son of Man is? It's an interesting question, isn't it? He's very broad. Who do they say that I am? But he doesn't use the word I, does he? He he refers to himself in the third person. Do you notice that? First time you read the question? He's asking a very universal question and a very impersonal question. Who do all the other people say the Son of Man is? And so they start to ask, they they look at each other. I can imagine, you know, they're looking around. Uh, Well, Lord, um, some people say you're John the Baptist. That's a, that's a, that's a great thing. And some say you're Elijah. That's even better. And some say you're Jeremiah. There's no better compliment than that or one of the prophets. It's interesting to me. It's almost like they're consoling the Lord. They're afraid that He's worried about His image by the question. Who are people saying? They're almost treating Him like He's a presidential candidate who's come to His advisors to say, Hey guys, put your finger up in the air and tell me, what's the, what's the consensus about me these days? He's not doing that at all. Why do, why do I get that? Because they left out the, in Matthew, the preceding verses tell us <clears throat> that a large contingency of the Jewish nation said he was Beelzebub, the chief of the demons. Nobody ventured to tell Jesus that. We're relaxing. We're taking it easy. Don't stress him out. He'll be worried about what people think about him. He wasn't asking the question to worry about what everybody thought of him. He's asking the general question to come to the specific question. Notice he asked off of that. No response. No denial. No worries. There he moves right into a better question. A more specific and a more direct and a more personal question. But who do you say that I am? Not the Son of Man. Who am I? He's stressing it now. The whole world's talking about me, but what do you say? There's no way to dodge it. There's no way around it. It's very direct, isn't it? And Peter steps up. What role is Peter playing here? The same role he plays in all of the stories almost of the apostles, and that is he's taking the lead. He is the leader. He is the first among equals. He is not better than the other apostles, but he even they recognize him as being gifted and he has risen to a place of leadership in their little band. And so I can imagine when Jesus pointed at the apostles and said, Who do you say I am? Everybody looked at Peter. Say something. Peter obliged. And he gave a beautiful confession. Bold confession. If it's not true... It's a blasphemous confession. And it deserves stones and death. Don't ever belittle what Peter said right here. If he had said this in the temple court, I would imagine they would have stoned him on the spot. He says, You are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. There's no greater title. There's no more exalted title than this. He has just made a great confession. And notice what Jesus says. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You didn't figure this out on your own, in your own strength, in your own wisdom. And no man taught you this. But God taught you this. Is that, not, is that not unbelievable? And it's irrefutable evidence that our salvation, our confession, is God confessing through us. When you said, Jesus is Lord, my life is His, I'm His slave, that was God through you. You couldn't come up with that on your own. You're not smart enough. You're not wise enough. That's the Spirit of God Welling up new life in you that screams out, He's Lord! He's Lord! 
And I'm his slave. Flesh and blood didn't tell you this, Peter. But my Father who is in heaven, because his Father draws all men that are his to him, and the ones he draws, the Son will not lose. And all he draws will call on him. That's a beautiful truth right there. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, there's been much hay made about this. And um, I may ruffle a little feather or two. I used to teach this passage as if Jesus was saying, play on words, Peter, you are a little stone and there's a big rock. And that's off the Greek because in the Greek, the word rock is a feminine word. It is not masculine. Peter's name is masculine. And so the endings are different. Petro and Petra. Two different words. Same word, two different endings. One masculine, one feminine. And this, a lot of hay has been made over this. There's a big flaw in it. Jesus was not speaking to him in Greek. He was speaking to him in Aramaic. There is only one word for rock in Aramaic. Kepha. Cephas. Simon, I tell you, you are Kepha. And on this Kepha, I will build my church. Now you say, whoa, you become a Catholic. Because this is where the Catholics take their error. Their error. They're erroneous here. They're heretical here. They say the Pope... Peter is the first pope, and all popes descend from him. And it's, that's, that's the heresy that we dispelled and we said is not true in our confession. And I believe that. There is no pope. There is no council. There is no pastor. There is no group of pastors which is the head of Christ's church, but Christ is the head of His church. But, I believe that Christ is saying here, He will build His church... On Peter and the apostles. Why do I believe that? Because that's what Paul said. You are a temple being built on a great foundation. The apostles and the prophets. There's no need to explain away one error by making another error. We don't need to run from it. Scholars will laugh at you when you say, the little bit about, well, he's referring to Peter here and a rock there and they're two different... No, they'll laugh. There's no way that could be discerned by Peter and the men standing there because he was using a different language when he was speaking. Be careful. Be careful. Your word studies can do you harm sometimes if they're not in context. So what is he saying? He's saying that the apostles, Peter being the representative of all the apostles... I'm going to build my church on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That's where Paul got this idea. And do they not respond exactly this way? Who comes up with the idea to replace Judas? Peter. First among equals. All the apostles sitting around. We've only got 11. There are supposed to be 12. Peter says, let's elect one from among you. Who preaches the first sermon of the of the of the at Pentecost, Peter. Why? Because he rose up as a spokesman, not of his own theology, not of his own beliefs, but as a spokesman for the apostles and Christ, their master. And if you look in Acts, he is the predominant spokesman for the beginnings and the and the rudimentary following known as the way, the Christian church. And it was that way because that's the way Jesus intended it to be. He is, in some way, the foundation. He is, and the apostles are, our foundation. We are being built on the foundation of the apostles. And he says something else here, which is evidence that that's exactly what he meant. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Keys are the picture of authority in the old world. 
He's giving the apostles the authority over the church. Whatever you bind in, on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. How do we see this play out in the church? In the early church is very clear. Whenever they disciplined someone, they were disciplined. What is our, uh, what is our story to show us this? Ananias and Sapphira sell a piece of land. They come to Peter and the other apostles. They lay down a gift. They didn't have to do it. But they lied. And Peter discerns the lie. And he binds Ananias. And he is bound from heaven. How do we know? He dropped dead. That quick. They drug him out. His wife came in. The same lies perpetrated. And they bind it in heaven. And she's dead. God's serious. All authority has been given to Christ. And he has vested it into the apostles. His foundation stones for the temple he is building. To cross them. To go against them. Is to go against God. Whenever they loose something, it is loosed. How do we know? When they preached at Pentecost, when Peter preached that great sermon, how many people were saved? 3,000. And then just a little while later, he preaches again, and how many are saved? Over 2,000. He's loosing, loosing, loosing by the gospel. And heaven is turning them loose, turning them loose, turning them loose. Where else does he lose? It's not just in the Jewish community. Acts tells us he had a vision. Clean and unclean animals. God said all things that I've made clean are clean. Now get up and go. And you will find one Gentile preach the gospel to him. When he preached the gospel to him, he loosed the power of the gospel by preaching it, just as Jesus had said. And what happened? That man and the whole family was saved on the spot and indwelt with the Holy Spirit. I tell you, Peter, it is on the rock of the apostles that I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, I'm not skipping that, I'm coming back to it. The gates of Hades will not have power over it. The exact word is Hades, not hell. Hades is the dwelling place of the dead. What Jesus is actually saying here is that death has no grip on my people. You see, when you start playing the word games, you miss it. When you start trying to consign away one thing, and then you have to do another, and then you have to adjudge and massage the text again to make it say what you wanted to say. This text is abused often. I've abused it myself in past times. I'm glad God let me live long enough to correct it. What he said is more powerful than just the schemes of this world cannot prevail against you. And the schemes of Satan in this world cannot prevail against you. What Jesus literally said is on the apostles I'm going to build my church and death cannot stop it. When we confess that the church is both living and dead because they're alive, we're confessing a great truth. The church is the only institution in the world that at death does not cease. It just transfers. It's still living. We are part of an institution that Abraham, Moses, and all of the great men of the old covenant are a part of. And they're in heaven worshiping God. And we are here worshiping God. And Revelation 22 says, worship God. What a, what a beautiful picture. It's not just that the schemes of man and the schemes of this world and the schemes of Satan can't stop the church. No, death can't stop the church. The greatest enemy to our lives is death. And Christ has overcome it. And what is the picture of the gates of hell not, or Hades not prevailing over the church? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul said, just as He is raised... So you have been raised and seated with Him in the heavenly places. And one day He's going to resurrect your body. 
What a laughing, what a laughing stock and a mockery death has been made into by the victorious Lord of His church. I'm going to build my church, and at my return, we're going to mock death. Not, 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 not be afraid of death. We're going to mock it. Why? Because it thinks it's held these dead bodies all these years. I can imagine as Abraham died, and as Joseph died, and as, as, as Isaac died, as Jacob died, as Joseph died, and later as Moses died, as David died, as Elijah died, I can imagine hell and Hades' death celebrating this. He claims to be the God of the universe and he can't even keep them alive. But I can also imagine when he in all his glory returns and those bodies, those very bodies that death has held for all these thousands of years come up out of the grave and put on fresh clothes. I can tell you that's when I want to look around and say, where is death's theme? Listen, don't assign away doctrine because it doesn't quite seem to jive. Peter and the apostles are the foundation of the greatest temple ever built. It's being built today. It will be built until He comes again. And it will not be stopped even by death. He will unite that church in a worshiping body in the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and new earth at His very feet. In our bodies. We will worship Him again. So, we have this as an explanation of how the apostles and prophets are the foundation which we are built on. It's fulfilling the word of Christ to his men. And so we get this understanding. <clears throat> Peter is in full agreement with what Paul says here. If we look at Acts chapter 4, we should see this theology. Paul was not sitting at his feet when he made this proclamation. Maybe Paul just misunderstood it. Although I do believe he sat and learned from Christ himself in the desert. I do believe that. I don't believe uh, that, uh, that he necessarily heard everything Jesus said in his life. So maybe Paul just missed it. Look at Acts 4, verse 11, in front of the council of the Jews. This is Peter's defense. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. He agrees with Paul that Jesus is the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Out with universalism. Out with compatible, tolerant views. If you do not believe in the name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, you are doomed to judgment. Because there is salvation in no other name. Muhammad or anyone else. Peter agrees with him. Peter agrees with him. Look at 1 Peter, the epistle that Peter wrote to the church in 1 Peter. Beautiful passage, chapter 2. Look what he says. See if you don't see the striking resemblance. And I'm going to make the point here that the reason you see the resemblance is because this is exactly what Jesus taught. Two men saved at two completely different times for different roles who spent most of their lives traveling different directions, having very little fellowship, and they teach exactly the same way. How? Because they had the same teacher. They're agreeing. First Peter 2, 4. As you come to Him, Jesus Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Death will have no victory over them. They will be built into a house for God, a temple for God, and their dwelling, and the dwelling place where God will be with them. That's what it's saying. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word. What word? The Old Testament word. 
This is not a new plan. God did not fail in offering the kingdom to some people in the Middle East, and so He had to come up with a plan B or a parenthesis or a bracket. No! He's fulfilling the plan He had before the ages of ages. The plan of the covenant of redemption. Which is unfolded beautifully for us in the covenant of grace, mediated by Christ, and put out for us in a progressive way, built on top of one another, all of the covenants of the Old and New Testament. The Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic, and the New Covenant, all together preaching to us one gospel. He is the cornerstone. He is the name by which all people can be saved, and only through Him. This is not a new plan. What are the Jews rejecting in Peter's day? Not the New Testament, not a new mysterious revelation, but the old Word of God given to their fathers, the prophets. But you, listen, he's talking to the church, but you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you not hear Ephesians 2 in 1 Peter 2? I do. You know why? They're based off similar texts in the Old Testament. I'm teaching my children right now Ephesians 19. Much of the language you see spoken of about the church was spoken over Israel at Mount Sinai. Now it's being spoken over the church. There's great unity in the plan of God. Because He's building and building and building a temple for His own possession that He might be worshipped by all men all over the world. So the church does not need a strategy for growth. The church does not need to convene conferences to learn how to build a church. Jesus is capable of building His church on one foundation, the apostles and prophets, fitting them together with the Holy Spirit, and He will grow His church. Hundreds of thousands of dollars are being wasted, wasted, wasted on church growth strategy. One strategy. Preach Christ and Him crucified. Boast in the cross and Christ will raise up His church. It might not be what you want. It might not look what you like you want it to look because it didn't look like they wanted it to look. But it will be perfect and without spot or blemish when it stands before Him on that day. There won't be one missing finger or toe in His body. He will have them all. Oh, this is a beautiful practical theology we're learning here, isn't it? When you start talking about we're the temple of God and who is the architect of that temple. You see, I think Paul in the backdrop here is saying Christ is the architect. He is the builder. He doesn't call Him the foundation in Ephesians 2 because He's better. He's even greater than just the foundation. He's the one who plans and pursues and puts together all of the temple resources. He does it. Much like Solomon gathered from all the Near East supplies to build Solomon's temple, Christ is gathering from all the tribes and ethnic groups of the world supplies and stones, living stones, to be His temple. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture. And it should drive us to this. It should drive us to worship God. We are the temple of God in our one purpose. Our one purpose. I say it again. One purpose. Not five. One. Not five. One. One. One purpose. Worship God. You can write a book. And you can give it five purposes if you want, and you can sell millions of copies. But the Bible still repeats there's one purpose. Worship God. What's got to be more than that? No. He is a jealous God. He wants you to worship Him. Not get distracted. The only eternal act that we do, you know what it is? Worship God. Worship God. Missions, as Piper says, missions will cease. Evangelism will cease. Preaching in this form probably 
goes away. Probably. I'm still holding out. Because I think what I'm doing right now is worship. So I'm, I'm thinking in the, in the eternal dwelling place of God, there'll be preachers. Probably not me, but there'll be preachers. Everything ceases but worship. In Revelation, we see nothing but worship. 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 That's the purpose of the temple, the church of God. So we're not a stone building being erected in some edifice being put up to look beautiful. We are being built to worship. It's our purpose. You want application for Ephesians 2, 19-22? Worship God. That's the application. And it happens through the Spirit who He joins us together in. He spent his whole upper room discourse, his last speech to his men. If you just had to say, there's one thing that I need to say, and I need to say it before I die. That's what Jesus did in John 13 through 16. And then he prayed it in John 17. Do you know what the major topic of discussion for Jesus that night was? The Holy Spirit. Why? Because he wanted them to clearly understand that they weren't being commissioned to go do the work on their own, to worship God on their own, but yet the Spirit of God would dwell in them and worship and work in and through them, them cooperating with that Spirit. Their Spirit working with His Spirit. His Spirit working first, then their Spirit, then His Spirit, then their Spirit. And so we, we see this in His last speech. He's got to talk about one thing and He talks about the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about it. How is it, and I don't want to preach Ephesians 4 because we're going to get there sometime. Ephesians 4, though, makes it plain that Paul sees this. Look what it says. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, verse 1, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, a small smidgen, small portion of the spiritual fruits. The Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because Christ is our peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, by grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The Spirit unifies us. So the mortar around these living stones is the Holy Spirit. It's foolproof. No earthquake can shake it. How do we know? Because Hebrews 12 tells us there's going to be a last shaking and all the earthly things will pass away. But except the eternal thing, this temple which Christ is building, it cannot be shaken. It will not shake. It will not fall down. Well, that's a beautiful thing. So the Holy Spirit is unified. We are the temple and the Holy Spirit is the mortar holding us together. Keeping us in unity. That's why I said earlier, uh, several messages ago, if you're at war with one of your Christian brothers, if you're in disagreement with him, you are sinning every time. There is no exception because the Spirit in you should be in unity with the Spirit in them. So either y'all are in sin or somebody's not a Christian. There's no other option. There's no other option. And so, we're a temple built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets and the mortar that's holding the bricks together is the Holy Spirit. Last point and the major point. All of that said to say this, we are the temple of God and our purpose, our one purpose is to be a worshiping temple. Not a place where people come to worship stone building but where people are fitted in from every tribe and nation and group into a glorious, worshiping, living temple. That's what the church is. Of all of the religions of the world, Christianity is the only one who does not have a place to pilgrim to. You ever thought of that? I'm sure some of you have. I cringe to hear people I know they may not mean it. I don't usually ask because I'm scared, I guess, of the answer. Maybe I should ask. But I hear people who've returned from Israel and they talk about it like it was a Mecca experience. Oh, I went to the Holy of Holies, the city of David. That is a blasphemy. 
There is no such place. On all the face of the earth, there is no such place for Christians. We pilgrim to an eternal home to see one person, Jesus Christ. Our pilgrimage is to the cross because through the cross we reach eternity. We have no building to go see. We have no wall to go well to. We have a man, Christ, the Son of God, pilgrim to Him. And He's available to us every day, in every place. And we are not limited now in our worship. It's interesting now. Now I want to give you the application broke down into little pieces. You knew I'd do that, didn't you? You knew I would do it. The Old Testament uses the main word for worship in the Old Testament. Is histava. Histava in the Hebrew is used 171 times to talk about worshiping God. It means to bow down. Bow, bow. Bow down. Lots of word pictures come out of that. The Greek translation of the Hebrew, which is so key to how the New Testament writers speak when they write. I know this is a little controversial, but I believe they took the Hebrew and the Septuagint, and they often are quoting the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, because that's the language of their world, which is why, by the way, we should preach from the English Bible when we preach, because that's the language you speak. The apostles did the same thing. They, they knew Hebrew intimately. They knew the Scriptures in Hebrew. But when they go to quoting in a letter to people in the church, it's always in the Greek Septuagint, which is a translation. Almost always. Not always, but almost always. And that word, histava, which means to bow down, in the Greek, means, is translated prosgeneo. Prosgeneo, which means bow down, kiss the hand. Worship. That word is used 171 times. Twenty, And then in the New Testament, it's used more than any other word for worship. 26 times in the Gospels. 21 times in the book of Revelation. Not one time in the epistolary literature of Paul, of Peter, of James... And of John. The main word for worship in the Old Covenant and in the Gospel teachings of Christ and recountings of Christ and of the age to come and it doesn't appear in the letters of Paul? How can it be? Because of what I'm about to tell you, what I've been telling you. That word means to bow down. And in the Old Testament, that word is used mostly about going to the tabernacle or to the temple to bow down, to worship. And in the Gospels, to bow down at the feet of Christ. And in Revelation, to bow down before God or to bow at the feet of Christ. In our day, in the church, there's no temple to go to. There's no tent for meeting. And there's no Jesus in the flesh. So what are you going to bow down to? No. The second most used word in the Old Testament is abad, which means serve. It is latrua. It is the word for worship in the epistles. Latrua. Whenever Paul wants to tell us how to worship, he tells us to serve. In the Old Testament, that's used of the priestly service in the temple. And Paul uses it to talk about you in the church. Christ has fulfilled the temple. He has fulfilled the Levitical priesthood. And through His Spirit, you are like Levitical priests Holy priest carrying out your service to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This changes the way you worship when you understand the church is the temple. 
It's not a place to come. And by no means am I making light of because I look forward to the day I will prostrate myself before him. I long for that day. I hope it's today. But I think we get the idea of coming and sitting and soaking up worship. It's done for us. It's done in here. And Paul would say, no! You have nothing to bow down to. Go serve. Go serve. That is your reasonable service. Worship. Romans 12, 1 through 2. Paul picks up on this theme of Christ and he expounds it. And the other writers do also. And where do we get this theme? Why is it this way? I, I can't help but say it's because of John 4. Uh, turn there. You're going to want to see this. John 4 is a beautiful passage. I loved it when I taught through the Gospel of John. I love it more this week after having studied it anew. In light of Ephesians 2, it makes much more sense now. It's all kind of piecing together. You know the story. He goes to the woman of Samaria that's at the well, and he tells her in verse 16, Go call your husband and come here. And she says, she answers that question. But previous to that, she's asked him a question. Look what it says. Um, she says, Sir, give me water. Uh, Sir, give me water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus says, go get your husband and then come here. And she says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman perceives him to be a prophet. And notice what she wants to talk about. Our fathers worshipped Proskuneo. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to bow down. Worship. Proskuneo. Which is it? Look at Jesus' answer. Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you proskuneo the Father. You won't do it like that anymore. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman says, I know you're the Messiah who is coming. And when He comes, He will tell us all things. The Messiah is coming and He will tell us all things. And Jesus says, I'm He. I am the Messiah. And she believes Him. She goes back and gets her friends. Why do I read that text? Because she had the view of worship that some of you mistakenly have. And that is you go to a place to worship. Geographical. Go to this mountain or down in Jerusalem. Which is it? She wants to know where's the right place to go and worship. And Jesus says, there is no right place to go and worship. What? There's no place to go to worship. The age has come when you will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Guided by the Holy Spirit, your spirit will offer up to Him offerings that are truthful. There's no place to go. There's a person to go to. And you go to Him so you might serve Him. So you might carry out His words and work. The idea of worship in the New Testament is not identical to the place of the Old Testament. The Old Testament had a, had a place and it is good. And it is, it is in some sense the worship we will experience in eternity in some ways through bowing down. But now we worship Him. Not that we aren't bowed down. But our hearts internally have to worship. You cannot serve Him with a hard heart. You cannot serve Him with unrepentant sin. You cannot serve Him with your hands without a heart that follows. He doesn't receive that worship. The form of worship is void in the New Testament. 
He doesn't tell us how to sing, where to sing, what to sing. He doesn't tell us exactly how to do anything in our worship. Why? Because that's not important. There's no place to go to worship. There's no style by which we must worship. It's multicultural. It's multi-ethnic. It's worldwide. And it's in spirit and truth. So when the church moves to Africa and still acts like an English church, that's wrong. It ought to look like an African church. Their culture ought to permeate the church. Because if it doesn't, there's nothing funnier than looking at pictures of a missionary with suit on and this and his, the tribal chief has become a Christian. He's got a suit on in a pulpit in a village under a tree. Why? Because they've exalted a method. Christ never did that. He obliterated that. In the sense that we now worship. Listen, why do, then you say, why do we have a pulpit? Because it's our culture. We'll preach that message another day. I also think it's wrong to go counter. Your tradition and your culture. It's wrong. You shouldn't do that. Don't quit trying to be somebody else. Be you. And be English. God has obliterated geography when it comes to worshiping Him. It is now spirit and truth. And it's served out by this term, latruo. Now, I have to prove that. Or it's worthless and it doesn't tell you what to do. So, I'll do that. I'll prove it quickly. And it's, you probably want to write these down. Okay? This is fast. Romans 1, Paul talking about worship, says, <clears throat> and what is worship in our day? You know, what is it? Okay, Paul will give us some clues here. Romans 1, verse 9. For God is my witness whom I serve, worship, whom I worship, serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So, we get this beautiful picture that his work, his apostolic work is worship. His prayer life is worship. His work in the church is worship. How would he get that idea? The texts that come to mind are Matthew 12, verse 6, where Jesus tells them that something greater than the temple has come, and He's talking to Himself, talking about Himself. And in Mark 11, verse 17, He tells them uh, a similar message, that He is now the temple, and this temple is being built on Him as the cornerstone, now is working like Him, through Him, for Him, as His body in the world. Mark, Romans 1, 9, Philippians 3, verse 3, Paul says something else about our worship in the church. Philippians 3, verse 3 says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. We serve. That's, that's the word he uses. We, who serve by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So this service is carried out in the Spirit. Romans 12, 1 through 2, maybe the most famous passage in Paul's epistles on worship. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. Worship. Well, we're now presenting sacrifices that are our bodies in this, in this temple. Romans 15. Another passage where Paul speaks of worship, Romans 15. And he says it in terms of his ministry, Romans 15, verse 6. <clears throat> in talking to the church at Rome, he closes the letter. He's getting close to the close. He says, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, we're to praise Him with our lips in this holy temple that's being built. We're to serve Him through our ministry. We're to pray as worship. All of these things are being built together. This is the way He talks about worship. Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13. Just to show you a text outside of Paul. 15 through 16. He says... All right, the preacher says, Through Him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect 
to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Our worship, our sacrifice includes prayer, it includes ministry, it includes praise from our lips, it includes service, it includes uh, good works which share about Him. All these things included in worship. It's no longer coming to a place and bowing down, it's now all of life. It's now all of life. Worship is everything we do. 1 Corinthians 10. Verse 31, listen, I'm not devaluing the role of coming to church. I'm about to build that back up. Don't, don't worry. But it's worthless to come here. It's worthless in some ways to come here without also seeing that your life is worship. Coming to a joint just to do it? That's outward worship. Christ rejected that. In John 4. And said, your worship better be in spirit and truth or it's not worship. So to live like the devil all week and join with God's people on Sunday like you're one of His is a contradiction of the highest terms. Stop it. Worship Him with your life. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all, do all to the glory of God. Colossians 3, which many music ministers abuse and use, is talking about our daily work and daily life. And in Colossians 3, he says, verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. That passage about singing to one another is not church. Gathered worship, that's every day. In your home, in your life, in your workplace. You say, well, if I did that, people would think I was crazy. Yeah. So they have thought of the church all of its life. That it's crazy, that it's strange, that it's out of place. Because it is out of place. We are out of place. Our lives should look out of place. Out of step. Out of keeping. Your neighbor ought to say, those are the strangest people I've ever seen. And yet we fail, don't we? I'm studying this great truth about worship in the temple being all of life. And Wednesday, Amy's tutoring I've got all the children. Um, I'm feeding a bottle. And one of my children, to remain unnamed, somehow accidentally dumps her, their water on another one of my children. I've been studying these great truths about worship, and that's your life. And I exploded with my tongue. I exploded. I lost my temper. My wife came in, there's her parent in the other room, and she's trying to come. And I exploded on her. And she got done, and they sat down to eat supper, and I went to run. Because in my spirit, I was angry. And I'm running, and I'm running. Man, that was the best three miles I've run in a long time. Fastest I've run in a long time. And about a mile and a half in, the tears start flowing. Why? Because that's not worship. That's not upholding the temple of God in the ears of a man that probably may not be a believer. And you know what he said to my wife? Well, it's good to know that other dads get mad at their kids too. Now I've become an excuse for him to sin. Because all of life in that moment was not about worship for me. It was about my selfish, meaningless desires. And I quickly ripped my kids up about something it's insignificant. I got done running, came home, gathered my kids close, and wept and told them, Daddy failed. I sinned. I sinned because I spoke to you unkindly and harshly and wrongly. Please forgive me. 
That's not weakness, men. That's biblical. How will they repent, which is an act of worship, unless they see you repent? And I repented. And I repented to my wife. And I repented to, I'd already repented to God, but I repented some more. And I got the sweetest acceptance from God. Because the message I was listening to on my iPod as I was running was this. His blood speaks a better testimony than the blood of Abel. You have come to Zion and not Sinai. You have been welcomed by Jesus Christ, the mediator of a new and better covenant. That word meant most to me because I had the right. God had the right in that moment because I was unbowed to Him to crush me like He did Ananias and He didn't do it. I had blasphemed His name among the Gentiles, the lost men of this world. And He had a right to kill me. And He didn't. Why? Because Christ is my mediator. And I'm forgiven. But that's not a license to sin. That's a license to repent and serve. Repent and serve. The Christian life is worship. All of it. All of it. Daddying and husbanding and wifing and mothering. It's all worship. Working is worship. All of life is worship. It's service to God. When Paul was ready to die, last piece of evidence for this, when Paul was ready to die, Second Timothy for he's writing to his favored son in the ministry. And he says, For I am even now being poured out as a libation, as a drink offering on the altar of God. He saw his life as an offering to God. And so he refrained from sin. He saw his life as an offering to God. So he served with cheerful joy. He saw his life as an offering to God and all of it is worship. And so he suffered without uttering complaint. He rejoiced in God always. And again I say rejoice. How? Because he saw his life as worship. All of it's worship. And it's all happening. You say, worship is great, but it's all happening as a part of this temple. Our lives are all happening as a part of this temple. And so we have regained in Christ... The mobile tabernacle of God. The moving tabernacle of God. That is now worldwide. If you listen to a lot of men in the pulpit today, you would think the church is shrinking. I tell you, the church is growing. Not just spiritually. Numerically, it is growing. The gospel is going forward to every nation, tribe, and tongue. Without fail, he is building this temple all over the world. So much so that John is caught up and looks and sees the temple, the city, the garden of God coming down from heaven, the new creation. And all this wickedness is gone now. And what is left? The temple which Christ has constructed. And his people live forever in his presence. And that's not going to be another world. It's going to be this world made perfect. It's the temple that we can't see with our eyes. We'll see it that day. All at once we will see the people of God, the temple He built, the lively stones around His throne, worshiping Him. Now, proskuneo, laid out. All of the servants of God will come and lay down in front of His throne and sing with the angels and sing with the creatures. What a beautiful scene. What a beautiful scene. And I yet need to implore you, be a part of it. Because there are people here who are not a part of that temple. And you can only be if you believe in Christ, the Son of the living God. And I have to implore you as a Christian, I have to beg you to worship God with your whole life. Everything. Everything that you do should be worshipped to God. If it's not, it's sin. And so there's a lot of repentance that needs to take place right now. Because as I've preached, 
you felt the way I felt when I ran Wednesday, a lot of guilt. And you don't have to leave with that. Because his blood speaks a better testimony than Abel's. And it's saying, come, 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 come. Come, I failed at work this week. I failed at home this week. I failed in my personal time. I failed all over the place, God. Come. Come. It's okay. Come near. I've paid that price. Drink. Eat. You have a place. So I want to give time for that. Our individual lively stone should worship in the little temple of our home and then join with the other temples to create a bigger temple in this place looking for the coming temple of all the generations of all the world around his throne. That's what we should be doing. That's the practical application of Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. That's the great structure. Let us join him in it. Let's pray. I want to just give a time of quiet, silence, for you to deal with God, to think, to confess, to repent. And then I want to pray to close. Let's let's go before him now.